Hey there, welcome to Something in Media, a show that tells the story of successful people in the world of media and what it takes to make it to the very top. I'm Dave Maguire. In this episode, we welcome along Yare Igihon, an experienced broadcaster at the BBC with a hell of a lot more experience under his belt to boot. We had a really good chat and it shows that behind all that success often comes a lot of grind. But I remember I used to go and do a show at Radio 5 Live called Fighting Talk. And I remember one day finishing that show and whoever I was on with, you know, one person was going off to their book signing and another one was going off to, you know, to a gig, another the latest gig on their comedy tour and another one was going off, I think Rick Edwards was going off to kind of present a TV show. And I went into the toilet, put on my Apple t-shirt and went across the road to the White City, you know, to, to the Westfield and went and did an eight-hour shift. Talking to Yare, it's obvious that music is his first love, and this passion has propelled him from day one in his career. Long before hitting the heady heights of presenting Early Breakfast on national radio, Yare cut his teeth as a music student in Yorkshire before coming back to London and getting his hands dirty working for various music startups who were looking to make a profit in an ever-changing industry landscape. As we'll hear, Yare spotted an opportunity as someone who could bring his love for music to the masses. And with a lot of hard work, hustle and talent, he eventually became one of the main voices on the then brand new radio station, BBC One Extra. He took another opportunity setting up a radio production company before presenting the weekend breakfast shows on BBC Six Music. He then went on to become an invaluable member of another national institution, the BFI. Yare's journey has gone full circle. He's now back at the BBC, but this time his role encompasses his talent for inclusion. We'll hear more about that in a bit, but first let's start with an introduction. So my name is Yare Igihon, and officially these days I'm doing, I am at the BBC, a creative diversity partner. And what for me that means is each day is that I work supporting the people who make scripted content, radio and music, where at the intersection of what they do, creating output, creating content, intersects with the whole gender around DNI. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about authentic portrayal, we talk about the people who actually get to make programs, how programs get chosen, which types of stories get chosen to be told, all of that in that area, uh, you know, I'm kind of working in there and then helping people understand. So the BBC's got a lot of commitments in that area, predominantly this idea that we committed a hundred million pounds towards inclusive programming. So I work with people a lot on that. And this idea that you know twenty percent of all of our production crews across TV will be made up of people from the three key underrepresented groups. So we have three groups that are really underrepresented, and those people are like disabled people, people from ethnically diverse backgrounds, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And so, essentially, I help across those areas, like scripted TV, radio, music, with the representation, particularly around those groups. Great. So let's um, let's go back to your childhood. You grew up in uh, in London. Yeah, is that yes, right? North London. Yeah. So my mum, she was originally in the sort of health service. So she was a midwife for a long time, and then a midwifery tutor, and then she left there and like she did a kind of a master's degree while she was midwifery tutor and train and transitioned into sort of education and so when she retired she was running a department at the kind of college of northeast london and then my dad trained in law and was a barrister for a little while and then it was kind of like a sort of a kind of independent entrepreneur 
he tried well at least he tried well, what kind of stuff did he do he did like he used to like so he was really good at like writing contracts and really like detailed contracts and so he tried to do these really elaborate sort of pan-national trade deals and things like that and it, he was always working on something and never seemed to really ever come off do you see what I mean he was a bit like that but um you know, he he'd written a couple of books in Nigeria and things like that. So you know, he was kind of a bit of an academic in that regard as well. Okay. And uh, at school, did you have one of those careers in mind when you were you were growing up, or was you just completely the other way? No. Nah, you know what? Like weirdly, like I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. Then in my early teens, I went through a period where I thought I wanted to be a journalist, and I did a lot of stuff around that, and lots of kind of like experience stuff and little course and all of those sorts of things and then around about sort of 14 15 I really got into music why are you interested in journalism do you just thought it would be fun to do I or? don't know I think yeah I think an opportunity came up to kind of look at it a little bit so I did that and then yes yeah, so I don't I don't even know where that came from I just remember doing it. I don't know how I, I can't even recall how I kind of got into it. I think just it's one of these things where I think that's one of the things that's kind of difficult today for younger people compared to you know 30 years or 40 years ago whatever it was it was like um because there were all these different youth service things so people would just go oh do you fancy doing this do you fancy do you fancy coming to this center and doing some archery or do you want to go to the scout center and play football or whatever there were all these different things that you could maybe kind of tap into that weren't like you know you didn't have to have a load of money to be able to get involved which i think is a little bit different today so you know, the opportunity came along. I did this journalism course. It seemed pretty cool. We did a bit of it, you know, kind of got into it for a bit. And then I kind of discovered music. So that was like, I used to, my mum used to send us along to Cubs and Scouts. I think it was just really about really filling our sort of free time out. So we just yeah. weren't just hanging about. <laughs> Because that's like, you know, that's kind of what you realise is what happens is that's how you get into trouble is that, you know, you've just got too much empty time. And then if you don't find productive things to do with it, you can end up doing things that aren't maybe necessarily productive. And you don't, you can't necessarily always tell when you're yeah. 14 or 15, yeah. you know what I mean? Which is, oh, right, yeah, and if I keep doing this, this is probably not going to be... Uh, you know lead to anything particularly useful so I think my mum kind of got it into her head that she should really kind of fill up our days as much as possible so we did a lot of things like scouts and stuff like that and that's how I kind of met a few people and got into playing music. So with music, it was it uh, it was making music, or was it yeah, listening yeah. music, or the whole thing? Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, performing and playing music, and therefore, like, so you were, you know, if you were, yeah, you, you listened to a lot, and 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 listening to music was always just a kind of a basic, normal, standard thing. Do you see what I mean? Everybody. You know, everybody that I knew or everybody that I came into contact with had their own sort of music taste, for better or for worse. What was yours? So I was very, obviously, I was very much involved and very much taken with the beginning of hip-hop. I think the first gig that I ever went to see live was something like Maceo Parker and the Horny Horns at the... <sighs> town and country club or something like that do you see what I mean you know so we were very much into that sort of that was sort of retro when we were kids that was retro do you know what I mean so that had all happened when we were very little kids or just before we were born and so we would then go out 
and those were the sorts of gigs that we were going to and everything and I kind of got sucked in with lots of other people who were really you know like because you know you'd go to these things and you'd meet people and you'd be like oh we they're doing I'm gonna go off and do this and you think so one of the things that happened I just started kind of playing music and stuff like that a lot of the people who were good at music and were doing things on the manor they were all going to this place called is in sixth form center I was like, okay, right. Well, this first chance I get to get out of my school, I'm going there. Do you mm-hmm. see what I mean? Because that's like that seemed amazing. Everybody was like playing music, and then when they weren't at school, they were going off and playing gigs, and and like people were doing stuff with it. You know, and there's loads of people who went there who went on and did, came, you know, became really successful musicians and everything. And I thought, yeah, I want a piece of that. Yeah. And so I I, start, I went along, and I did all right. You know, I think ultimately. I mean, I went from sixth form, like studying music, and I got on to a, a, mu- a popular music studies degree and actually did really well on that degree. I got a first, but it's like... So this is, um, uh, according to my notes anyway, you studied pop music at, was it Leeds University? Well, yeah, so a place called Bretton Hall, which is a college of Leeds University. So it was a little, it was separate from, at that point, it was very separate from Leeds in that it was based on a campus just outside of Wakefield, right by the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. It was a very, it was very much its own separate thing. So coming from North London, what was that like going that outside was, of Wakefield? Real, that was a real culture shock. It was really, really weird. I really, I really struggled at first. I came, I think I must first six months, maybe more. I, I probably came home every weekend. I did a lot of. Uh, National Express journeys. Do you know what I mean? Like, would you do when you're a student? Yeah, do you see what I mean? Yeah, you know, yeah. I I really found at first I found it quite difficult because it was just yeah, it was too much of a kind of a culture shock, and it took me a while to kind of settle down into that sort of student sort of life because it wasn't really. It was very different to what student you know student life at that point outside of London was very different to sort of being a student like sixth form or whatever Mm -hmm. up until that point so it's not like you know when you're sort of 18, 19 finishing off your A levels it's not like you never went to a pub but it wasn't the centre of the kind of culture when you go up you know you go to Wakefield and everything everything's based around the student union or like pubs and things like that and it took me a while to kind of get into that whole thing and adjust you know what I mean I wasn't necessarily a big drinker or anything so it took me a while a minute to kind of find my sort of it's not like I did it's not like I was having some sort of a nightmare do you see what I mean I was you know obviously I was um you know I was at a, a university college in Wakefield do you know what I mean so uh, like I maintain that only one of the only reasons I did really well at university is because it was really difficult for me to miss classes mm-hmm. because I was like, literally I was the only black person on my course and so literally you know the tutor would work into walk into the room and immediately he'd be like, yo where's Yari and you know right. be like okay yeah so I like there's a dude <laughs> there's a dude on my course who missed most of the first year nobody noticed but I <laughs> That wasn't an option for me, mm. and I had to show up for every class because mm. everybody immediately noticed when I wasn't there. If I was like two minutes late, people mm. would be like asking where I was. So I knew I had to always show up, and I maintain that the only reason I got a first class honours degree is because literally I just showed up to every class. With that, was there um, was discomfort, I suppose, or was it, nah. was it just um, awkwardness? Or No, nah, I mean, the thing is you kind of get used to it because the further up, you went educationally the less other black people you saw 
mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. Was anyway, so it was like by the time I got to like A levels, I'd gotten used to the fact that like you know, I mean, we were th- this, we were thinning out a little bit and spreading out and going off and doing our own different things. So you know, you know, it was Yorkshire. I wasn't expecting <laughs> to. Weirdly enough, that was one of the things that I found that like that's the thing that you do that's one of the mistakes that you make when you're in London in that era you think okay yeah black people live in London right and then you know and that's it right and then you don't necessarily realize you know I was a year or so into being at uni when I kind of discovered the sort of community that was kind of coalescing around particularly around black music in sort of like the north like you know northwest like Yorkshire Huddersfield you know so places like Wakefield Huddersfield Leeds Mm -hmm. Sheffield that area of the country do you see what I mean you know I naively believed that oh yeah no all the black people in the bit they're all in London right and I was coming up to be on my own and actually once you start to kind of live there for a bit and start to kind of reach out and do things like I'd I got very involved in setting up and running a funk night because obviously funk, you know, we were mm-hmm. into that sort of retro music and everything at the time. And so we, you know, I got into setting up a night that would play that sort of music and a bit of hip hop and so on and things like that at the student union. And then, you know, that kind of led to kind of meeting people in and around that sort of Yorkshire area who were you know other black people other people who were really into the music and everything and then you know during that period I you know kept playing in bands and stuff like that and going out and doing gigs and all that sort of stuff so yeah I was, I was going to ask did you keep up the music stuff when you when you left London and uh yeah no, that was the whole point I went yeah I went to do a popular music studies degree so I was playing all that period of time I used to play bass guitar and sing a bit and all that sort of stuff so that's what I used to do you know I mean I played bass in bands and stuff like that and you know <laughs> you know at one point we had a band called like so like at our college there were two you know there were two kind of bands that had kind of formed and you know what I mean so one band was called Bolo Bolo right and the other, but our band was called the World Funk Organization. The World Funk. Think about that. I mean, just think about the <laughs> sc- the grant, the scale of that. There were like nine of us, and we were the World Funk Organization. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So, um, any of your music still available? No, no. Good lord, no. I mean, like you know, I think if I went and like, I'm still like in touch with the drummer on and off from the band and he recorded things I reckon he could probably dig out a recording or two of the band do you know right. what I mean okay. but yeah you know you know, now if you were in a band and you were half decent you'd probably stick some you know you'd probably get all yourself together and you know part of your course would be sticking something on Spotify or something do you see yeah. what I mean yeah but like yeah this was pre-digital music yeah, and yeah. all that uh, so at that point in your in your life did you foresee a career in in the music industry then was that the goal yeah i mean like so when i first went to uni you know i thought i was going to be sting in it i sang a bit i played the bass you know what I mean? that's what i was going to do i was going to be like like you know sting was the kind of the the poor facsimile and i was going to be the real i was going to be the truth the real deal do you know what I mean? you know and you know and it turns out that whilst I was really really enthusiastic I wasn't actually that talented musically I was naturally musical but one I hadn't worked out how to like how to focus enough in terms of getting in the hours of practice so that's it's like with anything like you've got like a sort of a bit of natural ability there are some people who've got like sort of you know 
almost supernatural ability and they can do it with what seemingly very little sort of commitment and then there are other people who've got decent ability but have that sort of thing where they're able to really really focus and and really kind of hone and nurture that and I didn't work out how I could do that until much later yeah, so I, by which point I'd stop playing music and whatever. So I only ever got so good. Obviously, you excelled at university. You passed with flying colours. Yeah, but like a, a lot of that was to do with... Because the thing is, had it all been just, okay, how well can you play? Mm-hmm. Then I don't think I'd get a first. But I had to write, uh, you know, to come up with an interesting kind of dissertation and you had to attend classes. And was, that all played into it. So like I said, you know what I mean? Part of it was that I never missed any classes. Part of it was that at the end of the second year, one of the tutors, an amazing woman, I think she's passed away now, it's really sad, but a woman called Geraldine Connor Crawford. she'd started at the uni not long before I got there or like when I went up there the the popular music studies course was brand new and she'd been brought in to be you know one of the tutors on that course and you know there were maybe a handful of you know black people in in the, the intake that year and so we didn't meet straight away but when we did meet you know what I mean? Because like, like, people had been asking her whether I was her son because they just put two and two together. And like, you know what I mean? So this was this thing. So when I finally walked in the room and she finally went, she's like, you're supposed you're supposed to be my son? Do you know what I mean? She was deeply offended. Anyway, at the end of the first, end of the second year, she pulled me aside and said, you know you can get a first, right? And I was like, really? And it just lit a fire under me. I spent that whole summer just really banging out the the dissertation, which was a big chunk of the mark. Can you remember what the title was? Yeah, so mine something to do. It was about British hip hop, so it was like Brit Hop or something. I didn't, you know, and like, and essentially what I did is I did a load. Of, I remember like weirdly, enough, like I interviewed Rodney P from the the, the oh, uh, from London Posse, and weirdly enough, then years later, ended up on yeah. one extra with him, yeah. or like a, like a load. I think Black Twang I interviewed for that MCD. MC Mello, a bunch of people, and then I essentially put together uh, a sort of a map and an encyclopedia of British hip hop artists up until that point. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? And kind of a genealogy. You know what I mean? I kind of worked. What year? Out. What year was this? If it so this would have been ninety-five, maybe. Because I was just thinking that must. I mean, in terms of documenting British. British hip hop scene and that yeah. kind of movement that must have been quite early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was. It was. It was very early on, and that sort of. What's really frustrating, because I wish I still had it, because oh. I'd, I'd also I did a load of, you know, it was obviously it was it was hip hop, so you know it was that whole idea of, not just the music end of it, so the hip hop was like you know the rapping, the DJing, and the cutting and scratching the break dancing all that sorts of the graffiti and all those sorts of things so I presented it like that so it was a big format thing you know and I presented as like you know the kind of a book I presented it like a book you know what I mean and I've done loads of design stuff and everything and it's it's gone no idea I mean like I think I made two copies of it one of which I lost in one house move or whatever and the other other one that was supposed to go into the library Mm. I was going to ask about that yeah surely the university has a copy no I don't know so was media and radio in particular was that on your mind at all at the end of university well not so much a little bit so media was always that's so from 
six foot seven. I did like I did business studies. I did I think I did media studies as well. Okay. And like you know, so like it was always in that sort of effort. And then I was always like you know I was just into whatever was coming next. You know I was always at like so like I remember being uni being one of the first persons with, with like a, a mobile phone that you were afraid to make calls on. Because every individual call like cost an absolute fortune, and you just have this thing, you know what I mean? You know, just wait for it to ring. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like a Sony thing, it's like that, and a, and a massive uh, antenna yeah. that came out the top of the center of it. It's like yeah. ridiculous. Could you and, even text on it, or is it? Just, no, 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 no. I don't think no. you could text in. No, it had probably could only store ten numbers or something. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. yeah. You could, like, you know what I mean? And was, I, don't, I have no idea why I got it. It was absolutely pointless. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but like, I think like, maybe I'm made a few calls on it anyway right the, the point is I was always into that sort of stuff so I think off the back of uni a couple of things happened obviously I went back and started to like immediately was just like retail just getting on with stuff and just trying to uh, work things out from that point of view and you went sorry you you Came went back to, to London oh yeah. That, yeah. yeah yeah and then like one of the guys that I'd been in the band with he gave me a shout and was like, okay, right, you know, I'm down in London as well. I'm working in this studio and you should come along. And so, weirdly enough, it was this kind of weird kind of connection. So he'd come, someone else I was with uni, their older brother was involved with this guy and he was setting up a studio. He used to run these kind of club nights. It's called Sunnyside Up, if I remember rightly. And what the thing about these clubs is, is that it was the club you would go to where, when the clubs had finished. So it'd be like, it would start like ridiculously early, like Sunday morning, really early. Oh, wow. Like, do you know what I mean? Like something like eight or something in the morning. So when you'd been out all night and then you weren't, you still weren't done, you'd go sunny side up. Wow. Do you know what I mean? And then you'd, you know, you'd be raving into, from the morning into the afternoon. And so he used to then book DJs for that. And then he then, the guy who then he set up a studio and started making records with some of those DJs and me the drummer used to be in the world funk organization it's just something it sets you up for success and this other guy this girl we'd gone to union with her older brother we went and we started working in the studio and then you know and obviously it was a bunch of kind of rave do you know what I mean <laughs> was club promoters it didn't last that long but it was enough to kind of get me started and from there I went into sort of a, a sort of a club promotions job with a company called cd pool who was still going yeah tell me about cd pool was this the technology company yeah kind of they were just a couple of really smart dudes had been record execs essentially they'd worked at the labels they'd kind of signed things or uh, promoted things they'd done different jobs in and around the record labels and they essentially they set up a what was a record pool Mm -hmm. well like on you know what was the kind of burgeoning and emerging technology of the compact disc and what they did was which was quite revolutionary they would essentially they would go utilize their contacts around the record industry like and you got to bear in mind that most of it was like the record industry at that point was all kind of crammed into West London. Mm. It's just, just weird one of these weird things that happens in this country where you know industries kind of cluster in certain places. I mean, I suppose it happens everywhere, but in in London, a lot of the media industry had clustered into, like, West London, mm -hmm. right? And so you were able to kind of literally walk around or jump on a bike and, and go around loads of record companies and visit people and everything. It was quite 
close, you know, so what they've done is they essentially used all their contacts and record labels and they would get those guys to give them promos of new records just yeah. before they came out. They'd mm -hmm. compile them onto a CD and then DJs from all over the country would subscribe to the CD and then they would get posted them. So, you know, so the job that I had is that I would compile a few CDs for them each month and then and I'd organise, I'd run around all the record companies, find all the different records, compile them into different genre groups, work that all out, work out a kind of a CD master and kind of compile that all on a DAT or whatever, send that to the mastering house, get back a load of CDs, stick those CDs into envelopes, label up the envelopes, frank the envelopes, send them out. Do you see what I mean? And, you know, and then eventually, you know, eventually like a certain percentage of DJs wouldn't get their CD each month. And, you know what I mean? There was a, like, we suspected there were a load of like, do you know what I mean? Aspiring DJs who were working as postmen who worked out <laughs> Oh, do you know what I mean? <laughs> this package will be full of CDs, and so a few would just go missing. Well, that's right, because there's—I mean, you couldn't. It, there's no access online. This is literally the only way exactly. you could get yeah. this new music. Yeah, exactly. So you'd get you'd get your promos, and then and then you'd have them, and you you know you you know these guys were like you know, mobile disco DJs and people like that. Do you know what I mean? Really, kind of everything from like sort of keen kind of hobbyist sort of DJs right up to people who were, actually had quite a lot of gigs and were playing around a lot of places and everything. And uh, at this point, because you were back in London, were you at home again, or did you move out into your own? Dick? At this, well, see, th this is one of the things you know. What I mean, so like, um, I had, but my parents they went through a weird pe period where they didn't have a house, so I had, I was just forced to move out. So I moved in with a girlfriend at the time for a while and everything. And when that sort of fizzled out, you know, my brother. I have a younger brother who's maybe like a year, nine months younger than me, and he was sensible. He didn't bother with all this media nonsense. Because you, you said um, that if it wasn't for your brother, you probably wouldn't have a career in, yeah, in radio. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So he supported you during this time? Yeah, well, I mean, not <laughs> not intentionally, I don't think. I mean, Begrudgingly. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that, like, so what happened was, I'd been do knocking around doing bits and pieces like the the studio thing that I'd done had finished off a while ago I'd gone and so I'd gone from CD pool from there I went to an organization called darkerthanblue.com which was like a black music website and everything and they'd gotten you know they were in that first kind of dot com bubble and when people got cold for it. I think their their investment had come from, I think, Chrysalis or something. And Chrysalis was like, oh, mate, I'm not sure about this. And they pulled the money. Mm -hmm. So they shut down the company. And I'd just, <laughs> I'd just basically taken a mortgage with my brother. And then, like, the job disappeared. And then, like, so that's why I'm saying that I, I have a career. Because basically, in that weird period between that finishing and one extra starting, he essentially covered my end of the mortgage do you know what I mean and um, yeah and like kept us afloat you know and kept us in our house and everything and kept me in a position where I could just keep trying things out you know I wouldn't have had the time to pursue partic particularly because the, the one extra audition process was a bit drawn out Welcome back. This is Something in Media. I'm Dave Maguire. And we're listening to the story of how Yare Iggy Hon became a national radio treasure and a champion of inclusion. Before the break, Yare talked about his time leading up to the BBC One Extra presenter gig. It was a bit of a leap going from redundancy and having a mortgage to pay to suddenly being a presenter on a brand new BBC national radio station. Now let's hear Yare talking about what it was like leading up to that point. 
the first thing that kind of that's fundamental and kind of foundational to that was right so I'm at darkthanblue.com right and you know there's this idea that we have to develop the brand in the real world and not just online okay so then one of the things was idea that people liked was this idea that you know we'd take it take the brand onto radio we'd do a darker than blue radio show that would present all of the culture that the website kind of presented you know music and things like and I, I was there and like nominally my job was as the audio editor so like you know all the sound of audio content of the website I was there for this. so I said right I'll try and do this thing so initially the whole process was of um, trying you know we initially tried to speak to loads of the DJs and everything and said hey what well, do you want to come and present the darker than blue radio show and they were like yeah I'll give me X amount of money. I can't remember what the numbers were, but they were la large enough numbers for people to be, nah, boy, for an experiment thing like that, nah, we're not really paying that sort of money. Yeah. And so what happened was that one of the people who was also working on the website and doing audio bits and pieces as well was Jason and Lucia Fiore. Sorry, what was uh, Jason's surname? Jason Mitchell. Mitchell, okay. And so what Lucia who is currently and went on from there to become Omar's manager. You know Omar? Yeah, yeah. So she's still Omar's manager to this day, you know. I saw Omar at a gig recently and um, they were getting ready and there's this little woman, I was re right at the back at like the O2 arena, there's this little woman running around the stage putting out like set lists or whatever and it was Luch and I phoned her, I said, get off the stage, you can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and she, so she's still doing that and she's doing very well and Omar is still gigging and doing all sorts of things like he was supporting Angie Stone that night anyway, right? So it's Lucia's idea that Jason and I would present, would put the show together and present the show together and that's how we started working together. So what we did is that we had a deal with what was, at the time was called the Student Broadcast Network. Yeah. And so what they would do is they had essentially networked together a bunch of university radio stations and they would then take over all of those stations and link them together so they'd have a block of content that would went, went across a number, like, you know, a big chunk of the, the UK unis. And so, you know, then you could reach like a bunch of students and that's how that that kind of worked. And so we did a show like, you know, this sort of darkerthanblue.com show was basically part of that sort of chunk of compulsory programming that went out to all of these stations so the stations they would do their own programming certain hours of the week and then they would kind of become part of the student broadcast network for another part of the you know part of the day or whatever and how, how did you feel about doing a radio show because it i assume this is something you hadn't dabbled yeah. in before no. did you enjoy it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I loved, you know, I love because I was really into the music. Just so, so I, you know, yeah. I'd, I'd done a degree in music. I considered myself a music aficionado and that sort of thing. And I, I, you know, how music kind of linked together and where it came from and genius and how it was made and all that sort of stuff. So that was my angle into it. And I was like, yeah, you see, if you put this and this together, you know, you can kind of tell this story or whatever. And then Jason's angle into it is that he was actually out and DJing and everything. And that, so that we were quite complementary to each other in that way. Great. And then, so with one extra, I assume 
well, you tell me, did you hear about this station being set up? And yeah, well, what, we, th- what there the were rumblings. There? there were there were like there were rumours. Do you say? And so, like you know, so there was talk. You know, there wasn't like a. This is before there was like an official announcement or anything. Well, a bit a bit of context, like radio stations playing, let's say, urban music yeah. to generalise it. Were what was there at the time? You had um, Choice FM. Yeah. Lots of different pirate stations. Yeah. Yeah. Primarily London-based yeah. pirate stations, but there, it was quite sparse. Yeah. Like today, it's mainstream. Yeah. It wasn't quite the same back then, was no, it? No, 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 not at all. So the idea that the BBC were going to start a... Yeah, so they're, they're essentially their version of a pirate radio station. Yeah. And so we were. So what had happened is that we were doing this show, we'd started doing it, and that was going all right with Student Broadcast Network, and then Darken and Blue closed down, and Student Broadcast Network decided they wanted to keep the show on. So then it became like Jason and Yari's show and whatever, and we would just keep doing it. And so we'd go there every week, I think. Like, So I went from having a job to like having 50 quid a week income. Do you know what I mean? Oh, they still paid you then? Yeah. They, okay. they, they paid us to do it. And, you know what I mean? Well, and, 50 quid. But... Yeah. And then what had happened was I was I was like, you know, I think we can kind of parlay this into a, a show on one extra if we just keep trying. So we kept going along to do the show every week. We would finish the show, burn it onto a CD, put the CD into an envelope, send the envelope. We discovered that the, there was a guy involved in the setup of one extra called Ray Paul. This is before LinkedIn, yeah. right? So, how did you find out about uh, that? Do you know what? I don't even know. Do you know what I mean? It was jungle drums. It was just like the, the word on the street. Do you know what I mean? Like Huggy Bear came in and said, "Yo, psst, have you heard?" Do you know what I mean? It was that type of a thing. You know, yeah. there was rumours going around and everything, and like you know, so we'd kind of had that Ray was involved in it we found some contact details for Ray at the BBC and everything and just and we every to, week you we just would just bung in our CD from our show every single week and we just kept doing it and then one day they got back to us and said yeah come you know come yeah. in and, and do an audition type of a thing and we started auditioning we did a couple of days of recordings and then they stopped and we was like oh shit we've blown it and I think what had happened I, I, I mean I don't know for sure but what I think is they had someone else that they were thinking of for our slot and that didn't work out. So then, then they, you know, I think there's someone else they, they liked maybe a bit more, but that didn't work out. And so they had us in reserve. They came back to us. Did you ever find out from, from Ray? I don't know. No, I've never had that conversation. But I've heard rumblings, do you know what I mean? I'm sure like they're like, you know, you know, if we go up there now, we could probably find someone who might know. <laughs> You know, you know, so the whole point was they kind of we, we we auditioned for a bit, then they stopped, and then they brought us back, and we did a bit more, and then one day they said, right, you're in, you know, you stop everything else, be here at four o'clock on whatever day it was, and that was it. So, uh, so early breakfast slot, yeah, one extra, yeah. So they, yeah, so we started, we were doing six till nine. Now, I, on at the same time on Radio One, breakfast was Chris Miles six till nine. But we were called Early Breakfast, right? which I just assumed, I always assumed was just rank racism. Do you know what I mean? We just assumed that, okay, like this, this, this is the sta- this is our normal station. This is our station for black people and black people won't be up. So we'll, we won't do breakfast until nine. Six till nine, I'm sorry, is prime breakfast. Exactly. That's what I always thought. But they, for years and years and years, they called us Early Breakfast. I think by the time we left, we were the bre- breakfast show, I think. But... Um, so two things. What went through your mind when you got offered this? It must have been yeah, quite no, no, spectacular. It, yeah, it was like it was one of the yeah, it was it was amazing. It was one of the best moments ever. Your brother must have been relieved. 
Yeah, I mean, he didn't really get it. He just, you know what I mean? It's like, because he all thought we were, because we, we'd always sit around talking about the industry. And you know what I mean? He's like, you potential players, <laughs> the industry. Do you know? What I mean? He just thought it was all nuts. But he was always really support. Do you know what I mean? So even though I don't think he, I think he thought it was a bit of nonsense. And from his point of view, he was right. It was nonsense. If you look at his car and my car, he was right. It was nonsense. If you look at his house and my house, yeah, it was not. Do you know what I mean? If you look at his bank balance and my bank balance, yeah, he was right. It was entire nonsense. He was right. Do you know what I mean? He went into, he went, worked for banks and people like that. Do you know what I mean? And made some actual money over a long sustained period of time. Do you know what I mean? So a lot of media people, I think you go up and down, it's feast and famine or whatever. Yeah. But like, um, you know, then he never got to interview Alicia Keys. So do you see what I'm saying? It's, well, that's it. Yeah, it's kind of... Yeah. yeah. You kind of have to have a passion for it to work in media. You can't... Nobody really goes into media, I don't think, for the money. I yeah, I mean, I the, think... I think at some point you have to think about them because you have to, it has to be sustainable, you know? Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's not where you start off generally, you know? You just have to work out ways of kind of making it sustainable by earning enough money, you know? Yeah, there's absolutely, there's a hard, fast, you know, you need a salary, but there's also a lot of currency and I get to, you know... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You get to do some amazing things and go to some amazing places and meet some amazing people, or all of that sort of stuff, right? None of which is of any value when you show up at the bank needing a mortgage or wanting to pay your credit card bill or whatever do you yeah. see what I mean it's like oh, can you let me off my credit card bill I just interviewed Samuel L. Jackson it just isn't you know it doesn't have any kind of currency in that regard but it does you know you know, there is a sort of a kind of a satisfaction to doing it and, and kind of getting to that sort of thing so it was really amazing to kind of get the gig at one extra and it was a great relief as well you know what I mean because they actually you know they paid us yeah, every couple of weeks not just 50 quid it was yeah you know like, yeah, I mean it wasn't like it wasn't Moyle's money do you know what I mean but it was you know it was enough it was enough to live on to have a mortgage to run a car all that sort of stuff it was great yeah and so what year was was that 2002 2002 so you you did let's call it breakfast show from 2002 to uh 2007 yeah that's quite a long run for a for a breakfast show as well I mean, yeah no I, I didn't feel like it at the time we certainly weren't ready to leave at the time broke my heart to leave absolutely you were enjoying it you can't, did yeah. you did you find that you you slotted into that uh that environment pretty easily i mean the getting up was hard yeah. getting up every day was was hard and i was I don't remember my being like late loads, but like people who were around at the time, you know, look back and go, ah, you know, you know, you were always late all the time. And I was like, I was like, oh. do you know what I mean? I'm not anymore. Weirdly yeah, but, enough, I, I think it kind of cured me of that that whole thing of just being. But I mean, you know, breakfast show, pretty much every breakfast show presenter I'm aware of was always late too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. Lifestyle. It's very yeah, it's a very tough thing because when they when we started, they used to make us come in at four. Even though the show was at six, so at first they because again because they, they didn't they didn't know us that well and they didn't know that we could be just, you know what I mean after a while they realised if I said five we'd be there close and we'd be enough five and we'd be in on time do you see what I mean I think they think if they thought they cut you any slack well like you know if we tell you four and you're an hour late you'll still be in at five do you know what I mean and so there'll still be time to get in do you know what I'm saying but that's what I think it was and during that po- point did you find your profile rising. A little bit. Did you, were you doing extra bits outside of the BBC? Yeah, I was, but it wasn't like that. I think is possibly one of the things that I didn't necessarily capitalise on 
in the way that I should have done you know so I did loads of things like I went and I, I taught BTEC at like you know what I mean at the City Nizam College and I did other bits and pieces but really what I should have realised is what am I in here and what are the ways to kind of leverage this do you see what I mean which I didn't really do enough mm-hmm. you know and I didn't have a plan enough of a plan it's like okay you don't you know so that's the thing I think that's not like a regret but if I look back on it and or if I was looking at someone was kind of going I just got the breakfast show at one extra right what should I do I would be like yeah you've got to have a game plan because it doesn't last forever and you've got to work out it's very difficult to do that to be on a national radio show every morning and have all this sort of thing and like have you know this procession of famous people coming and sitting down with you and talking every morning you know every other morning whatever and then to not be doing that anymore is really tough to go from there to that you know so the thing is that you've got to work out you think okay well what am I doing you know this is a really good platform this is a really good opportunity what am I doing to actually kind of capitalize on this hindsight's a wonderful thing it is but but also I think you people could you could be excused for two reasons one you're still quite young at that point and t- and two nobody really knew yeah, what no, one no, extra no, was going to be no 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 and you had no idea what it was going to kind of become and you start you know but you start you and it wasn't in those early days it wasn't the thing that it is now you know but it, it obviously it had an impact and you know it changed things a lot you know but you you didn't necessarily know what that was going to be and you you know it's very difficult from inside it you know what i mean with a bit of hindsight and you know you know last summer was the 20th anniversary of of one extra you can kind of go oh yeah flip me now yeah. you know and, but, um, yeah, and and now it's as we as i mentioned it is part of the mainstream and yeah. you you know target has a tv show yeah you know and that kind of thing which you wouldn't have foreseen back in the early yeah. 2000s which i is, mean yeah i mean totally and i'm i'm I'm, i totally want to see more of that sort of stuff you know like target's going to have like targets involved in a in a drama series that's going to be coming eventually yeah is he yeah yeah that's based on something it's called a thing called grime kids is he's involved in as well is he acting i don't think he's acting i think he's originated the story the the thing is so that's one thing which i think is like amazing i want to see more of that sort of stuff where like you know that that culture and those that talent the people that are involved in that network going off and doing other things and working in other places and kind of spreading that sort of the uh influence of it around more and i think tv is a great place for that yeah well uh the bbc it's kind of got everything covered in that sense. It's, um, it'd yeah, be nice I think to we could do to, more as yeah. an organisation. I think we could do more of that kind of cross-pollination. There's a certain things that... Because there's this kind of weird equivalency that's made between something like the BBC and Netflix, for instance. But if we lean into it and we take advantage of who we are and what we are as the BBC, there are things that we can do that no one else anywhere can do. And one of the things is, you know, you know, is linking up and... and using things like one extra to kind of drive new and interesting tv and all the sorts of things one of the things i dream of making happen do you know what i mean this is okay but dj eight you know ace oh yeah 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 Yeah, i'm like i'm a massive fan of aces and he's a really really good guy and i have this dream of one day having him presenting on homes under the hammer 
So what happened in 2007 then? Am I right in thinking you, you stuck around One Extra for an extra couple of years in 2009? So what, what was going on there? Did you... I'm interested. So like basically when we left One Extra, one of the exec producers pointed out that like, you know, with the changes that were happening at that point in time, that we could potentially start a production company and pitch because obviously you know we had five years of working at one extra we understood the culture of the organization and the music and you know it was all ingrained in us at that point so you know obviously we had as good an opportunity of being able to pitch to produce a show at one extra as an outside company who had nothing to do with it you know even if they were a really established company yeah so we set up a company jason and i and we made the overnight mix shows at one extra so like 20 hours of content a week like at five nights a week four hour mix show with one of the djs like twin b was one of the djs and like we we had a different genre each night twin b lovely fella yeah. I, I, uh, I went through a stint producing one of those was like for cover it was yeah. a tough show to produce because it was like was it one till four yeah, yeah oh, that's one right yeah, yeah. yeah it's four hours yeah. yeah yeah so it was like one yeah like on like 12 till four or one till five or something like that yeah yeah uh, how was it for you going from in front of the microphone to suddenly being i don't know i don't want to call it uh, a businessman but do you know what i mean Someone yeah i mean it was different because like Jason definitely took the lead in terms of working with the DJs and going. So we would pre-record all those shows. Do you see what I mean? So that was fun. so like you know, from an hours point of view, it suddenly become like much more office hours. Mm. I think Jason took the lead on the, the creative bit of working with the DJs and everything, and I had to take the lead on all of the sort of business admin things and getting the you know getting the taxes done and the accounts done and the PAYE and all of that sort of stuff. And you know. It was not like Jason's fault or anything, but one day I was like, I was trying to fix, I'm on the phone with Orange or something, trying to fix a problem with his Blackberry. I thought, you know what? Sod this for a <laughs> Do you know what I mean? This is not what I got into all of this for. I mean, and I was lucky during that period because what had happened was I tried to pitch Radio 2 like for a six music show like for for our company to produce a six music show and ultimately they were like oh we don't think your company's experienced enough to produce a show for us it was like oh. but we liked you come along and present the show so that oh. I did that so that's how I ended up doing six I, music oh I see so um with Jason then I, I heard, I've heard you say it was a bit like a marriage and you split up before you had to break up so was that the kind of transition well it was more like you know what it was it was like it wasn't the transition because the thing is is obviously we kind of started working together to do the the shows and then the shows weren't there anymore do you see what I mean and we had the production company and after a couple of years we didn't have the production company do you see what I mean because yeah. we, did, we didn't get renewed like, like one extra didn't renew it do and you know yeah, what I mean you, you had to learn some hard business lessons like yeah. hide, you made me hide the wrong people perhaps yeah like my first hire, the first time I ever hired someone was actually a, a complete and total disaster I don't think the, the woman I hired I don't think she ever completed a full work week of work like I showed up Monday through Friday every single day for like one whole week the whole time we'd we she worked for us do you know what I mean it was really really bad like and then yeah, we made a few mistakes with hiring and everything. And I learned a load about it, do you know what I mean? In, by the end, when we got it down, like, you know, I mean, I'm, I wrote my, <laughs> I wrote my own, like, numeracy and literacy tests and then said, look, right, if you want this job, you have to complete this. 
Interesting. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? So that I'd like literally because we ended up like there was a point where we had someone who literally couldn't read and write properly. Okay. Do you see what I mean? You know, couldn't label fucking dats of like recorded shows properly and things like that. And there were all sorts of little problems. That, do you know what I mean? If you deliver the master like saying this is the show and it's not labelled correctly, you know, you say here are the five shows for the week and they're not labelled correctly. Do you know what I mean? That's a problem. Do you know what I mean? It's those little things like that. You know, so ultimately it's quite difficult because you're what essentially you're you're trying to run a business and there's money involved in that business and then you know there's work everybody's trying to do do different work and everything and you've got different ideas of what each everybody's work is worth and one of the things that we hadn't necessarily built in to the contract and the way that we priced it out because we were naive and we were new to it and everything was okay well actually we hadn't priced ourselves in very well do you see what I mean? So it's like, okay, like, you know, we'd kind of done the BBC, this wonderful deal where we would essentially, we'd hire in producers and people and get everything everything up and running because you couldn't do all the work yourself. But, like, we hadn't actually priced ourselves into the business. So, that you, you know, so ultimately it wasn't sustainable. But if you hadn't done that before, you, I mean, you're right, you wouldn't know, but it's almost like a, a master's in business going yeah. through that period where you... You yeah. suddenly clock it's again hindsight is a wonderful thing, right? But you find yourself on Six Music, uh started at the same time as One Extra, around about the same time. Yeah, it started about the same one one extra and I went there sort of two thousand and seven and did two thousand and seven, two thousand till two thousand and nine. And that was that was again early weekend breakfast, was it? Yeah, so yeah, that was weekend breakfast I did. So I went in to originally to do a show called Six Mix. Yeah. And then did weekend breakfast. And then, you know, and then the kind of management of the station changed and the new people came in and was like oh what's he doing here we don't quite get it and so they didn't renew my contract and that was the end of that how did you find that period because obviously it was quite an intense two years with jason yeah, yeah. you know suddenly behind the mic you leave that behind you're back in front of the mic again yeah quite a different environment i can imagine working at six music well, to yeah, one yeah no totally and originally i'd said to jay do you want to come and do this and he wasn't interested because it was like so because the mu- the music I did a popular music studies degree. So, like, I didn't, you know, whilst I've, you know, I was interested in and focused on and really sort of committed to black music, there wasn't all the music that were was, do you know mm. what I mean, from in my head. Mm. So, like, it's like, oh, yeah, no, do you know what I mean? You want, to talk, you want to talk about some rock music? Let's talk about some rock music. Let's do that. Do you know what I mean? I could, you know, because, like, I didn't, you know, I came from it from more of a musicological thing as opposed to, like, the DJ, club DJ type mentality do you mm-hmm. know what I mean where you're you have your genre of music that you play it's like no I, I was just I was just into music so it didn't really matter to me it's mm-hmm. like okay right we're doing black music today great all right and now we're doing we're doing rock music and we're talking about indie bands and yeah. it didn't matter to me do you yeah. know what I mean it was all just music and mm-hmm. I kind of understood it on that level but you were by yourself in the studio that must yeah. have been a bit of a shift yeah so that was difficult but also just I mean the thing is is that like you know whilst that was a bit of a shift it was like it, it was a shift that I was kind of ready for because, you know, like, Jay's a good guy, but he's very, like, okay, right, I'm I'm in charge. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, we had the... Co- I remember us having the conversation about whether the show was going to be called Yare and Jason or Jason and Yare. Do you know what I mean? And he was like, no, it was definitely Jason and Yare. And he, he absolutely insisted on that. And that's all... He was that guy. Do you know what I mean? And that not, that's not a bad thing. It's not a criticism. It's just that's what it was. So I get it. I can, play, I can be a sort of a... a, a 
the the second fiddle type of a guy, but it's not my natural thing. So I was ready to kind of not be that dude anymore. Mm. So that's so it wasn't a big deal from my point of view in terms of that shift because I was ready to go, you know I always needed a few bits and pieces that I was doing so that I could kind of offset that feeling. Do you see what I mean? And feel like I had a bit of agency and I was driving things myself because you know Jason was always very very dominant in that situation during that period. What were your thoughts in terms of your the wider career? Did you have something in mind, or no, were you never. were you kind of having to reset exactly what you were yeah, going to so do? Yeah, so once the six music thing came to an end, yeah, then it really had to start thinking hard because this point now, so this is two thousand and nine. So two thousand and nine, it's the year I got married. I had my first kid that year as well without that sort of regular income from presenting shows coming in I had to like really so by 2010 I'm back working retail do you know what I mean after that you know because I part time because I needed to kind of even things out you know in terms of that sort of wild swinging around of sometimes you had some money sometimes you didn't I had to even that out and make sure that I could make a mortgage payment each month so I took a bit of retail job. I did bits and pieces and I tried to keep the media thing going I think one of the things that was really really disheartening during that whole period or like was really difficult for me to deal with like which I should have you know again benefit of hindsight but I remember I used to go and do a show at Radio 5 Live called Fighting Talk yeah. Colin Murray used yeah. to present it right and so I'd go along and I'd be on this show and it would be great and I'd started doing it like because I'd met I'd gone along to a, a radio one of these briefings and I'd met one of the producers of the show and we'd gotten chatting and he'd kind of invited me to come along and, and try and do it and it was great and that's I was still at one extra when that had happened so it was this little extra thing that occasionally I would do and I'd get doing it but I remember one time going over so they used to do it like from TVC yeah, yeah like West London like White City that way and I remember going over and doing fighting talk and like broadcasting to a million people and you know like there'd be like people like Sean Locke and Bob Mills and people like that on these shows and go and you do these shows and be brilliant and I remember one day finishing that show and whoever I was on with you know one person was going off to their book signing and another one was going off to you know to a gig another the latest gig on their comedy tour and another one was going on I think Rick Edwards was going off to kind of present a TV show and I went into the toilet put on my Apple t-shirt and went across the road to the White City you know to to the Westfield and went and did an eight hour shift on the shop floor at um at the apple store and i really was like oh man i just so i just didn't feel like i should be in this situation do you know what i mean really you know? so that that's, that's that could that could have gone one of two ways that could be you saying i i shouldn't be working at apple i should be do-. but yeah. actually you had a, like had an a imposter, crisis you had yeah. an imposter syndrome maybe. yeah exactly you had a crisis of confidence despite like, doing breakfast on one extra despite all, doing all of that sort music. of stuff do you see what i mean i was like you know i wasn't doing i didn't have a regular radio gig and everything and i was coming along to do radio five live fighting talk and i wasn't in it i wasn't involved in it do you know what i mean so i just felt like i shouldn't do that you know and and so I kind of pulled back from that and started to kind of work out okay well what should I be doing and so the first process of that was focusing on is that 80 20 principle okay what 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 is the 20 percent of what I'm doing that's giving me 80 percent of my freelance income what's what are the things that are are the most lucrative and so there were two things that I started to focus on so I did 
got myself to a situation where I was maybe doing 20 hours a week at the Apple store and what I'd done is that we'd moved house we'd downsized and everything so rather than having a it wasn't like that swanky but we had an apartment in a serviced building in Peckham alright and it was like a converted school do you see what I mean and there was two things wrong with it one it was really expensive for what it was and two like we had a baby and that baby was turning into a toddler and you realise this whole place is set up for adults it's not set up for toddlers and it just felt like everything in the entire environment was like hazardous to our health and was like we have got to move right so we managed to find a place we sold our flat and you know for less money than what we sold our flat for we bought a house that's a little bit further out of town uh, Lewisham you know but it's a little three bedroom house and it meant that the baby had her own bedroom and we had a bedroom and we had another room and then I set up a little studio and then I was working from there for a while and everything you know so we did that and then the overhead we got our overheads right down London service charges and all that sort of stuff and we had to pay for a parking space do you see what I mean whereas this house had a mm. free parking space <laughs> right outside the front door do you know what I mean? so like you know all those sorts of things get your overhead right down and then we started to kind of work out what was this so let's start focusing on two clients that I had as a freelancer where I was getting most money from and one was uh, br- uh, Black Entertainment Television whom I used to make radio adverts and the other was BFI, it was the British Film Institute where I used to go in and either host events for young people or like host kind of workshop me type things all for the young people so essentially so I just focused on those two things so I made loads and loads of radio adverts on my little Pro Tools rig left over from when we were running the production company mm-hmm. and uh you know so I, I did that there and then i i would do um i'd go and host these gigs and things at the, at the british film institute and i just focused on those two people and said like what can i do how can i be helpful and everything i remember one of the things i worked out was that i was at the apple store and they released the ipad mm-hmm and then they did an update to the iPad and there was a dongle that allowed you to really easily connect it to other things like HDMI or whatever mm-hmm. and I was like I went in there I went into the BFI and I was like hey look at this right you've got you know here is you know we've got iMovie on the iPad so now here is a device where you can shoot and edit a little bit of film do you know what I mean so you know you're trying to show young kids how to how film works and how the, the the mechanics of film works and how storytelling via film works here you go here's one device you can put in their hands and they can do the whole process they can film themselves a little bit and then they can edit it and then you know they, they've gone through the process of thinking like mm-hmm. a filmmaker and they were really imp- I did this kind of presentation with it and I showed how you could use the device and they were like cool do you know what I mean and so that's how I got into the eventually what happened was I'd go in there I started going in there more and more often doing like little bits of freelance and then eventually they offered me a contract to come in one day a week and so I would do that alongside the Apple Store and then that turned into like three days a week and so I'd kind of cut back my Apple Store hours and everything a little bit so I think at which point I cut them down to maybe like 16 hours a week or whatever so I'd go in there two days a week and I'd go to BFI three days a week and then eventually they offered me a five day a week contract and then eventually that turned into a permanent position and everything and I was in the education department at the BFI programming what they call the future film program which was like you know program for 16 to 25 year olds and like events and there'd be a monthly event and everything and I was doing all of that and I'd program and curate those events and then one day so a couple of things happened during that period so one was I started to realise that 
there might be an opportunity to kind of with the beer friday the venue and all that sort of stuff so we started putting on these events where we'd invite filmmakers black filmmakers because they didn't have any opportunity they didn't have any opportunities they didn't have necessarily a, a variety of opportunities so we just give people an opportunity to show their film in a prestigious venue and everything and and you know hopefully be able to leverage that to do other things you know at the very least when you go and have your next meetings and all oh, you've been up to i'll just show the film of mine at the beer sounded good right so we started doing that and that eventually kind of spiraled and started to become its own thing and that so that was one thing that happened and then the other thing that happened because i did that i invited the bfi's new head of dni down to one of the events and she was like oh you know she was quite impressed in that and eventually kind of invited me to apply for a job in her department which is how i then made that cross into the dni situation I might be connecting dots that don't need connecting, but I'm I'm sensing throughout your career, even before you joined the BBC, you have this theme of wanting to help people, give people a leg up. Is, is that a conscious thing? Do you think I, is, I, that, is that true? I don't know. I think it's you know, I don't know. I just think it's just something you know. I think certainly it's certain like you know, it's certainly something I became more conscious of later. I'm aware that when I kind of go, okay, right, I'm trying to help people, things just pop off. Things just start to work. They connect. Things happen. Do you know what I mean? You know, so I know that, like, trying to find ways to be of service works for me. But good things kind of come out of that, right? But we'd always hear stories about, like, you know, you'd, be, you'd meet a random person when I was a kid, you know what I mean? And they'd be, oh, your mum helped me so much with this or whatever. Or... Like, I remember really, like, just meeting loads of people who I didn't know at my dad's funeral and tell me all these stories about how he'd helped them with this and he'd given them that and everything, you know. And um, I was thinking, who's that, that dude? <laughs> I feel like, you know what I mean? I was constantly chasing around this dude to give me something, do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, and I met all these people who were like, for whom he was this kind of amazing that giving person I think it's like I'm kind of wired like that anyway do you know what I mean but like but I've I kind of found out later that like that's how I make things work for me that I find ways in which I can take my experience my knowledge my network my connections and use it to help other people and that works for me and then other you know then you know I kind of things come back to me that kind of make it worthwhile but I can't do it in a sort of a conscious way I just look back and go oh yeah no because I did that this thing that door opened or this thing happened and everything but and you can't ever do it like if I do this I'll get it I can't it doesn't that doesn't work for me but I've just find that if I put enough stuff out there then things come back that's nice that's really good um in 2014 you co-founded uh soul s-o-u-l Can you tell us a a bit about that? Yeah, so basically I'm at the BFI and a couple of things are happening. So one, people will come to me, oh, you're at the BFI, how do I get my film at the BFI? I don't know, bruv, do you know what I mean? And then I also realised that, you know, I'm going and I'd work amongst a bunch, you know, eventually it turned into a job, but I'd go in amongst this team of kind of freelance people, yeah? Filmmakers and different people. And I noticed occasionally, you know, people like you know this guy who's gone on to do like doing very well for himself like rob savage for instance right so film director now 
and he would come in and say I've just made this short film can I use the auditorium to show it to like the crew and friends and family and they'd be like yeah cool we can do that and they'd find a little bit of time in you know downtime in the schedule often like you know the public program would happen from sort of five or six in the evening so you know if you came in at like three in the afternoon you could show something and get your people in and out before and it wouldn't necessarily you know they could kind of arrange things like that and so we were like oh but yeah why are we in doing that so those two things like hold on we know all these people here and we could make the ask could we use the auditorium and two this idea of people kind of wanting to you know how do i get my film on at the bfi and we put those two things together and realized that we could open up this space for people to come into the BFI so we started that then as we started to put together the first of those events we realised that one event wasn't going to be enough so we thought we'd better come up with a brand for it and everything so the idea of screening our unseen lives that's where that came from where we needed something to call it and then the guys at the BFI education department love them they kind of thought yeah no this is good you should do this more often and so we did it we did it every three months for about four years five years something like that and then during that period, we tried to talk the people who run the public program into allowing us to do a thing in the public program. So that these were like essentially a private event. And we was like, you know, we think we could create and like events that people would actually buy tickets for, do you know, and pay to come and see. And so eventually, after a few years of trying to convince them, they eventually went and, and allowed us to do it. And there was a key woman who was instrumental in kind of making that happen. There's two people over there who were really instrumental in making it happen multiple people really but like I remember like there's a woman called Michelle White early early on and then a guy who's still there running things called Stuart Brown and there was an amazing woman called Gaylene Gould and between them you know at different stages they were the people that helped ultimately help that festival to start happening and that's still running to this day to this very day are you involved in it at all I am I am yeah. I'm the director of the festival and I'm like literally I'm working on it every day between you know my BBC job and everything Thing. I do little bits and pieces on it pretty much every day of the year. Great. And so obviously comes full circle. You come back into the, the bosom <laughs> yeah. of the BBC. Yeah. In general terms, what was that what what was that feeling like coming back into the BBC but it was weird that time in your life. It was like so it was weird because it would have been much more of a sort of a victory you know what I mean you know end zone touchdown dance <laughs> ah, baby I'm back but it was COVID you know oh yeah I mean? yeah do you know what I mean so I was at home with a laptop <laughs> do you know what I mean like just going to endless endless Zoom meetings do you know what I mean so it's like it wasn't the sort of big triumphant return do you know what I mean guess who's back baby come on you know what I mean you know like all that it wasn't that so um but you know what it was it was interesting because you know and this is what I mean in terms of you know because we set up the soul thing because we thought we could help people out but right but from the outside it was like oh you found a solution you found a DNI solution you've kind of created you know so that that's how I kind of crossed over into the sort of DNI work you know that's what opened that up from there then that's how I kind of and then I just pitched and just talked to people I came along did a job interview and talked to them about okay this is what you did this is what I would do this is how this would work this is why you do and you know convinced people that you know I had something worthwhile to contribute do you see what I mean and that but the only reason I knew how to do anything because I like I was you know because literally I'd talk to loads and loads of filmmakers about the issues and the problems and, and their point of view so I was able to kind of present that 
back but it's only because I tried to help people that you know what I mean so I don't have DNI training I don't have DNI qualifications I just have experience of helping people who are finding it difficult to access the film and TV industry you know from different sorts of backgrounds and I was able to use that sort of insight and information to kind of turn that into a job really that's that's awesome because I, I think a lot of people listening they would look at your career an amazing career <laughs> yeah, breakfast so breakfast presenter yeah. you know running a production company working at the bfi you know coming up with all these different vehicles to allow people into different opportunities were there any moments where it was kind of pinch yourself or was it just is it all kind of in reflection you look back and kind of go oh that was kind of neat there, 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 there are loads of moments there are loads of moments i remember one time one time when we were on extra we were in a hotel and we were on one of these junkets and um, we were basically, we, you know these press junkets, so there's a, I can't remember what the movie was, but we got to interview Samuel L. Jackson or whatever, and we decided, right, what we'll do is we'll put a load of different examples of like kind of the music that one extra on a CD and play into it and see what he thought. Do you know what I mean? What do you think it is? And do you know what I mean? And I just remember having this moment where he kind of stopped the guy, because they were, you know, did these five minute, Interviews and he stopped the person and said, "No, no, no, no I want to keep the." Do you know what I mean? He was because oh, he, he likes music and he likes culture and he was, he was into it and he just wanted to keep it going for a few more minutes. And so I remember that being like a bit of a moment. I remember interviewing Alicia Keys at Radio Two for our like Jason and I did a, a little kind of um, Radio Two little experimental series. Like one we left one extra and we so we went in there and said, "You know that the, the hip hop generation is aging into your demographic. You should have a black music show." They were like, "Oh, that's an interesting idea." And as part of that show, we inter- we interviewed Alicia Keys, and I remember the producer saying, "You did, you know, you did that whole interview like this with your mouth hanging out." And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> "Do you know what I mean?" I was just like. Uh, you know, so there was loads of money. I mean, like even like last summer when we did like um we did the the film festival, and we had this incredible moment where Letitia Wright and um, Tamara Lawrence they come and presented this film called the the Silent Twins, and it was just this real moment. And like that whole festival, like that you know that whole three days was really like kind of incredible as well. Do you know what I mean? You think bloody hell, you know this was just an idea and now it's an actual thing that actually happens every year you know so yeah you get those sort of moments but equally you know as great as all of that is I have a like you know on my phone I have a video of when I taught my daughter how to ride her bike and I promise you that feels like one of the like literally definitely like teaching my kids how to ride a bike both of them like you know what I mean it's like feels like up there amongst my greatest achievements or like all you know earlier this year when my brother came from New York and surprised me for my birthday do you know what I mean I walked down the stairs into the front room and he was standing there <laughs> and I was like what you know what I mean I don't you know so I have like you know career and everything is brilliant and I love all that but like amongst all of that like there are moments from my personal life do you know what I mean that feel as big or as significant do you see what I mean and so I don't kind of put it I don't put it in those sorts of terms in terms you know like you know know, so I'm not necessarily maybe as career focused as you think I was do you see what I mean it's much more about yeah it's definitely about balance Yare Igihon and how he became something in media how did Yare carve out such an amazing career? We'll get further insight from our in-house careers advisor via our website at somethingin.media, where you can glean a deeper understanding of what it takes to make it in the media and even the opportunity to book a one-on-one session. You'll also find a newsletter. Sign up via our website. 
Something in Media is a stable production. And if you enjoyed it, don't miss an episode by pressing the subscribe button or follow button wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone may benefit by listening to these types of stories, please do let them know where to find us. 